0: 7 Things I Wish Christians
1: Knew G'day and welcome to 7 Things I Wish Christians Knew a super series designed to help you get past 7 of the most common mistakes Christians make when it comes to the bible now i'm your host mark hadley and i'm joined by dr mike bird theological heavyweight and the author of the book by the same name g'day mike hello mark and hello to everyone
2: out there listening
1: Well, this episode, Mike's going to talk us through scripture is normative, not negotiable. A must for those who want to know what normative means, at the very least. First up, Mike, thanks for being part of the show. And maybe we should start with your perspective on how common this problem is. I mean, do people really fail to realize the Bible is the standard setter for our behavior?
2: Well, it depends what context you're in. I mean, there's different Christian traditions which will uh, attribute different levels of authority to the Bible. But generally speaking, throughout church history, Christians have regarded the Bible as the word of God. And therefore, it's not just valuable, it's not just insightful, it's, it's type of a divine authority that we are kind of meant to be bound by and something that we should obey. But here's the problem. Sometimes obeying the word of God can be difficult because there's stuff that is said and commanded in the Bible that's not always applicable immediately in
1: the present. Wow. So, you're going to tease some of that out with us in one of our interviews later in the show. But first, before we talk about today's topic, Scripture is Normative, Not Negotiable, we're going to take a quick break to benefit from hearing a bit of chapter three.
0: Interpret the Bible in light of progressive revelation. One interpretive rule we need to remember is that God's revelation in Christ is the climax of God's revelation to us, and represents the definitive account of God's purposes for us. That does not mean that everything before it is redundant or relativized, but it does mean that everything must be viewed through the lens of God's continuous purpose for His people. So, on the one hand, polygamy was tolerated and regulated in the Old Testament largely out of practical necessity. Polygamy was a way to preserve tribal purity, to create familial and military alliances, and to maximise reproduction during a time with high mortality rates. Although, unsurprisingly, in most cases, polygamy ended very badly for its practitioners, as it did for Abraham, Jacob and Solomon. On the other hand, the ideal spelled out in Genesis is that marriage should be built around a husband-wife relationship which Jesus affirmed with the added emphasis that marriage is to the exclusion of all other relationships. And Paul likewise reinforces marriage as one man and one woman. This means that you cannot read Genesis 16, where Sarah urges Abraham to take Hagar as his concubine and say to yourself, well, Abraham had more than one woman. I'm a child of Abraham. So let's add a plus one to this marriage and then log on to Tinder and start looking at king-size beds at Mattress Depot. Sorry, no. Polygamy might have been normal for the nomadic tribesmen whom God chose to begin his rescue project, but it was not the ideal. And Jesus and Paul both spell out God's definitive word on marriage. It is a two-person show, one man and one woman. Christians also need to understand that the law of Moses was never intended as an eternal, for now and forever, unchangeable series of divine commands to be obeyed. Rather, the Mosaic Covenant was a temporary administration of God's grace to govern Israel and intended to cocoon God's promises around Israel until the promised messianic seed came. It taught the Israelites about God's holiness and the severity of sin, It prolonged their capacity to worship God in a pagan environment. The law pointed ahead to the coming of a messianic deliverer and was preparatory for Israel's role to extend salvation to the world. The law was part of the scaffolding to keep things temporarily in order, upright and stable, pointing ahead to a future world. But when the future came, the scaffolding was no longer required because the new building was finished. While the whole question of the abiding validity of the Law of Moses divides Christians, I'd argue that the Mosaic Law, even if distilled down to the Ten Commandments, are not the definitive summary of Christian ethics. Rather, the content of Christian ethics is the teaching of Jesus, the example of Jesus, and life in the Spirit. The Law remains relevant in many ways, but not as laws to be obeyed as such. Rather, the law remains relevant as a form of wisdom for Christian living and a prophetic witness to Christ. In other words, the law is more of a consultant for ethics rather than a code of ethics. So, when we are faced with a problematic text about anything from polygamy to prohibitions on pork, we have to ask if it has been superseded by something better in God's progressive revelation of himself. We should recognise that the Mosaic Law is not the primary basis for Christian ethics, even while it remains a form of wisdom for Christian living. Biblical authority must be understood in light of God's progressive revelation climaxing in Jesus and the teaching of the Apostles. It's called the Old Testament for a reason. Note, I did not call it the, er gross testament, not the, well, we tried that, but it sucked, testament, Not even the very ancient and strangely Jewish testament. The old was good. It has its place and purpose, but it is supplanted by the new, even as the new affirms much of the old.
1: Seven things I wish Christians knew is brought to you by the Eternity Podcast Network, where you can find other excellent podcasts like The New Testament in Its World, another podcast by Dr. Mike Bird. Mike worked with N.T. Wright to write this amazing book on the world that was the setting for everything that happened in the New Testament. So, if you want to get a bit of historical context to the Bible, The New Testament in Its World is the podcast for you. You can find The New Testament in Its World with growing collection of other great podcasts over at eternitypodcasts.com or just follow the link in the show notes and also in the show notes you'll find a link that will help you get your own copy of seven things i wish christians knew now up next each episode mike bird will interview a well-thought-out christian who has a lot to contribute on our current topic For episode three, Mike speaks to Brian Rosner. Dr. Brian Rosner has three degrees from three different countries, culminating in a prize winning Cambridge University PhD. He's lectured in New Testament at the University of Aberdeen, Ethics and New Testament at Moore Theological College, and he is now the principal of Ridley College. He's also a member of the International Society of New Testament Scholars and a member of the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Translation Oversight Committee, that's a mouthful, and the author or editor of a dozen books. So Brian is the perfect person to help us understand why the Bible is normative, not negotiable.
2: Welcome to the 7 Things podcast based on the book 7 Things About the Bible. I wish all Christians knew and I'm talking to none other than Dr. Brian Rosner of uh, Ridley College, the principal of Ridley College, and a very fine principal, colleague, and boss, may I say. Welcome along, Brian. Hi, Mike. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Today, we're talking about biblical authority. Uh, Nothing controversial here, of course. Nothing controversial here. Uh, but actually, it is. It's very controversial, and I'll never forget reading one author saying about, "Oh, well, you know, if the Bible, if you treat the Bible as a sacred, dogmatic authority, then you've turned the Bible into a paper pope." Okay, is this is this true, Brian? Should we should we be afraid that the Bible is a paper pope?
3: Well, there's lots lots of things to be afraid about when we talk about the Bible. So. Um Maybe. I think that is a potential danger that you can end up having a view of uh, the Bible as the infallible word of God and um, join the dots and think you're infallible. I mean, that, that's one of the risks with a high view of Scripture. But I certainly don't think uh, recognizing, as I would put it, the divine character of Scripture um, necessarily leads to that kind of caricature, that it's some kind of paper pope.
2: Yeah, that's a good I amount, mean, So there is the danger that um, you know people can believe in bibliolatry, where um, that the Bible gets venerated not as a revelation, but almost as a sort of a, a divine person, uh, divine person, or like the now the the uh, codes of the Medes and Persians. You know that 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 kind of a thing. It becomes more like a sacred relic. Um, you know, that, you know, someone once said um, about evangelicals that they believe in God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Bible, um, which is, you know, it's just a caricature. But we do know of sort of context and type of cultures and, and sorts of arguments with, with you can see where that's coming from. But if, if the Bible is not a paper pope, if we're not into bibliolatry, then what would you say is a healthy account of biblical authority?
3: Well, I think what you've got to do is to determine the nature and purpose of Scripture according to Scripture. So if you just take Paul, for example, um, the classic text is 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and useful and so on. Yep. But even if you leave that out, I think there are lots of hints and clues about Paul's own view of Scripture, which indicate that he does regard it as um, inspired, as having a divine character. It's probably not as explicit as most people would like, but in one sense, it's not surprising because uh, the socio- sociology of knowledge would say that your, your basic presuppositions, the symbolic world that you're operating in, is going to have some things that are so true, so important that they're not worth saying. So in other words, the inspiration of scripture, I think in Paul's writings, for example, is very much a presupposition. Um, just to give you a few examples of that. I I, I think Paul's view of Scripture is basically the standard Jewish view. So you'll get Philo and Josephus, the letter of Aristius, all sorts of Jewish authors in the Second Temple period will be quite explicit about Scripture's authority, if you want to put it that way. And Paul, the way Paul describes Scripture, meaning the Old Testament in his case, uh, gives you some clues. So in Romans, he talks about Scripture as holy, Romans 1 verse 2, Um, In Romans um, 3, verse 2, he talks about Scripture as the oracles of God. That same phrase is used quite frequently by Philo, Josephus, and in the letter of Aristius, as an indication of the divine authority of Scripture. I think, too, the way Paul introduces Old Testament quotations is telling. So he's got two main ways of doing that, the so-called introductory formulae. Um, He talks about... uh, uh, it stands written, the perfect tense of grapho, gegraptai. God spoke through scripture, but he also speaks. So you've got the present tense of the verb to say with various subjects. Scripture says, David says, Moses says, and also God says. Um, another example would be where you've got um, says the Lord, Lega kurios. Uh, three times Paul says, that with reference to Old Testament text, where it isn't obvious in the context in the Old Testament that it is God speaking. So sometimes it's been said that in Paul's view, what Scripture says, God says. I think there's good evidence for that. And uh, intriguingly, you can almost reverse that because on one occasion, what God says, Scripture says. Romans 9.17, Paul quotes Exodus, where God is speaking to Pharaoh, and he introduces the quotation with the words, Scripture says, So I think there's a sense in which the authority of Scripture is uh, indicated through those ways in which Paul talks about Scripture and introduces Scripture. It stands written and it still speaks. So you've got the perfect tense and the present tense. I know uh, uh, Greek grammarians or uh, the hairs on the backs of people's necks will be standing up when I talk about that. But uh, nonetheless, you get this sense that Paul regards Scripture as the place where God speaks, and there's also a sense where there's a direct address from Scripture, and that's really the authority of Scripture, where Scripture still addresses us in the present.
2: Well, that's, I think, a good summary of um, biblical authority, certainly, you know, using Paul's letters and how it's part of the Jewish worldview, that it's, you know, where God, when Scripture speaks, it's God speaking. Um, I, I, to move into Luke Acts, I think it's also part of the, the, the counsel or the will of God, okay, the purposes of God. I think of the Greek words boule, you know, the boule of God is made known in Scripture, which points to, of all things, Jesus Christ. Um, Brian, what what would you say to someone who said, look, you know, I think our authority is Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the life of Jesus, because I think Paul's a misogynistic, you know, so-and-so. I think the Old Testament is this kind of Bronze Age, ancient Near Eastern weird, tribal violence? I mean, is it possible to say some bits of the Bible are authoritative and other bits are not? Can we we pick and choose which bits of the Bible we think are authoritative?
3: Well, we've talked already about Paul's view of the nature of Scripture. I mean, you could do the same with Jesus. Jesus shares the same presuppositions about the Jewish Scriptures, about what we call the Old Testament. He talks about your word is truth in John, even somewhere like John's Gospel. And uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law until all is fulfilled. So I think um, it's not really a pick and choose situation. And the, the, the nature of Scripture leads to its purpose. So the purpose of Scripture, I think, is twofold. It's to witness to the gospel, to use a phrase Paul uses in Romans 3, and it's to transform our conduct. So it tells us what to believe and how to behave, and you actually see that with the, the classic text in 2 Timothy 3 where inspiration is explicitly taught because in the previous context, it says that uh, uh, Scripture makes us wise for salvation, so there's a sense in which we learn the gospel from Scripture, but then it goes immediately on to say that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable mm-hmm. for teaching, rebuking, rebuking correction, and training, and so on, and then in chapter 4 immediately Uh, The instruction is to preach the word, to correct, to train, um, and to uh, rebuke. So the two functions of scripture, if you like, the purposes of scripture are to teach us what to believe and then how to behave. There's a wonderful little phrase I love, uh, which gives us that connection. It's that little phrase, scripture was written for us. So you find it at the end of Romans 4, where Paul's just talked about how the Um, Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So he's talking about how scripture, um, in that case, the law and the prophets, he says in Romans 3.21, testifies to the gospel. So scripture was written not just for Abraham, but for us. And then in 1 Corinthians 9, he uses the same phrase with reference to that uh, peculiar law about not muzzling the ox in Deuteronomy 25.4. So you've got there the sense in which Paul does affirm the authority of scripture as impacting on what we're to believe, especially with reference to the gospel, and then just as importantly, how we're to behave, our, our conduct.
2: Okay. Well, thanks for that, Brian. That's that's useful. So I think that's it's a good remembering that you know, um, we can't have a view of scripture different from what Jesus himself had if we're going to be followers of Jesus. So you can't do Jesus first the Old Testament or even Jesus first Paul or Hebrews or Revelation. And scripture is authoritative. Uh, primarily in the sense of its uses, okay. Oh. For us, what to um, what we believe and how we behave as followers of Christ. Um, but can can we find any um, uh, unhealthy or inappropriate ways to use biblical authority? And you know, for example, should the Bible be used as a? Is it authoritative as a counselling manual? I mean, that because that's a that's a I guess a controversial thing. I mean, there's a there's a movement called biblical counselling. Um, you know, is that an appropriate use of the Bible's authority? What What are your thoughts on that, Brian?
3: Well, it, it raises the whole question of hermeneutics, of course, how to, how to understand the text, how to stand, as John Stock put it when preaching, how to stand between two worlds. And I think um, a, a Christian view of uh, truth is that the Bible does contain truth, but all truth is God's truth. And... Uh, Um, The early Jews and the Apostles, uh, I think, were part of this way of thinking, believed that any kind of study was a form of worship of God. So I think the worldview of the Bible, um, which leaves behind a doctrine of creation and um, of natural revelation and of the importance of reason, um, is, is a false worldview. And the idea that we can get everything for the bible and ignore everything else in the world around us is a kind of obscurantist view which is which is
2: really a bit of a dead end and ends up being a distortion and abuse of the bible yeah and and yet it and yet it can mask itself as a as a high and superlative view of scripture uh, which it might have, but at the expense of the fact that, you know, God has a natural revelation, he's creating human beings in his image, he's made them capable of reasoning, exploring, discovering things in their own world and about their own human constitution, which I guess it's it's important to say that the um, God's revelation um, is a book in two volumes, the book of scripture and the book of n- nature, with you know, nature a very broad category for all the various things we can explore about the cosmos and human existence. Okay. Oh, excellent. I mean, if you were, if you were giving some young ordinance or maybe some middle-aged or slightly older ordinance uh, some advice on how biblical authority works itself out in say a, a parish or a church, um, what would you say to that? What, 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 what does biblical authority look like at the parish level? Well, I think we have to maintain a
3: distinction between um, things which are beyond dispute, things we learn from Scripture um, about which there can be no argument. Uh, so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for example, I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for, the, for our sins according to the Scriptures and so on. And what Paul also teaches in a place like Romans 14 and 15, um, disputable matters. So the Bible is infallible in everything it teaches, but we don't have an infallible grasp of everything. And we need to leave room then for some disagreements between Christian people of good faith. I think that's one of the things uh, that that people make a mistake with. So they think if I have a high view of scripture, I have to be dogmatic about everything. I have to die on every hill and make sure I teach everyone exactly what to think about everything. It's just that wasn't even Paul's view. So Paul had a kind of uh, um, uh, a view of some issues being um, the high moral ground and other issues being maybe on the slope, if you want to use the metaphor a bit further, where you've got to make up your own mind. Uh, you have to pitch your tent somewhere, if you like. So some of these disputable matters about which Christians, uh, evangelical Christians, people who have a high view of Scripture, might disagree will work themselves out in different ways in different contexts. Um, The other thing I would say is that in order to do honour to the authority of Scripture, it's not just about believing something, it's about behaving in accordance with Scripture. And the great challenge, of course, is having our um, minds renewed so we don't conform to the world around us. It's such a challenge for every generation in every context to recognise that the culture around us needs to be critiqued. It's a difficult thing to do. So the mm. West, for example, is, is just so uh, materialistic. People think the purpose of life is the accumulation of possessions and uh, which leads to a kind of hedonism and so on. So you could hold to a high view of scripture and then do nothing about the fact that you're worshiping greed as an idol. So it's the, the, the um, the test of whether you're really holding to the authority of Scripture is the sense in which it transforms your behaviour by renewing your mind. I think another thing I say, and I think you do as well, Mike, is that we, we commend expository preaching. So expository preaching is a way in which all of Scripture can be brought to bear on a congregation's life and uh, world. Uh, if if the pastor gets up and preaches their favourite texts or just what occurs to them this week as important, that can work for a while. But over the long haul, preaching through books of the Bible, I think, is is the best way to do preaching because it uh, covers topics you would not otherwise cover. It gives the preacher a derived authority. I think that's really important. So people are hearing the preacher as a messenger of God, as an ambassador, and it gives variety to preaching as well. So I think there are a number of ways in which we can deny a high view of scripture by the way we use scripture. And that's the great challenge in the Christian life.
2: Well, I mean, just to, to recap that, so at the parish level, you've got to differentiate between the authority of the text and your own interpretation. And the two main authority. And your own again, your own authority. Yes. That's a good one. Um, it comes down to not simply believing the Bible, but whether you actually get around to obeying it. I mean, I think I think John Stott said something like that. Like, what really counts is not subscription, um, but submission. You know, whether you're willing to do what Scripture says, um, ha- and having a high view of Scripture that's capable of critiquing uh, culture. But we also want to be able um, to to you know to to point out the necessity of living it out in the face of an of a, I guess of an unbelieving world. Yeah. Okay. okay. That's probably that's probably a good way of putting it at the parish level. Do you do you have a favourite text in the, the Bible that refers to biblical authority? One that you carry around with you mentally in your head?
3: <laughs> well, I think the 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 for us texts I really like. There's another one in one Corinthians. I think it's ten eleven where Paul says that Scripture was written for our instruction. Yep. For our, I think it's uh, new to see our admonition. Um, so that, that's really the test, isn't it? Uh, it's one thing to believe the gospel, which is one of the big purposes of Scripture. It's another thing to obey uh, its instruction in our own context. And uh, um, that, that, that reminder that Scripture not only spoke, but um, it speaks to us with a direct address is really helpful. And that's often a, a challenge, I think, for theolo- uh, theology and Bible college students, they come to college reading the Bible as if it's addressed to them. And we kind of say to them, well, actually, it's not. It's addressed to the church in Corinth or it's addressed to the Edomites or it's addressed to Israel. It's addressed to the uh, uh, returnees from exile. And and so this gap kind of opens up between them. And it's a problem. Sometimes it's called the, uh, the problem of distanciation, And I, I think holding both truths together is so important that God did speak through Scripture. And to rightly understand scripture, you've got to read it in its historical and literary context, of course, uh, but it still addresses us in the present. And I think even though the preacher's authority is not personal, there is essentially a derived authority. And uh, when you think about the kind of words the New Testament uses for preaching, I think prophecy is actually the, the, the biggest umbrella term for Christian communication in a church. So I think uh, even churches that don't, don't believe in the gift of prophecy, they're really performing prophecy without realising it if they're speaking from Scripture to their specific circumstances.
2: Wasn't the um, DTS's um, school of homiletics called the School of the Prophets? I don't know about that. I, I I'm sure, it maybe, maybe it was before the time you visited there, but that their sort of homiletic school was called School of the Prophets. Um, where, they, where preaching was saw on, seen as a type of um, um, uh, extemporaneous prophesying, a, a telling forth of, of the oracles of God. If, if, it's not, if it's not from DTS, that's Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, it's definitely an idea that would resonate with certain strands of the, of the Puritan tradition.
3: Yeah. Well, um, I, I mean, when we gets, when someone gets up to preach, I never like it when people say they're going to explain the text to us they're going to teach us. Well, teaching is part of it, but it's more than that, isn't it? And honouring biblical authority, it may, may be a good thing to say would be now so-and-so is going to get up and, and, and prophesy Yeah, uh, when they do an expository sermon. I think that's an entirely legitimate use of the language.
2: Or well, what uh, John Updike said for one of the characters in his novels, you know, that the purpose of the preacher is to burn people with the passion of his belief which, you know, I think is you know, a good way of, of, of putting it, um, although as long as you're doing that in a way that's uh, generally linked in to um, uh, the Bible and, you know, and makes sense and connects with people. So, yeah. Okay. Excellent. Well, Brian, it's been a pleasure to talk to you about this topic of biblical authority, uh, which is a controversial one, a big one, and yet an important one. And certainly for people who belong to churches who cherish and love the Bible, knowing how the Bible is authoritative and in what sense and what the limits of its authority are, I think are a very thing, are good things to know about and indicative of having a healthy view of the Bible. So it's not a paper pope; uh, it is the the council and the will of God. You, you'd agree with you agree with that, Brian? Not sure, Mike. Okay, good to hear. Good to hear. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Brian. Good on you. Thanks,
0: Mike.
1: Thanks for joining us for Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew, and we hope it's been a helpful challenge for some of the unconscious assumptions we make about history's best-selling book. Mike, in a sentence or two, can you tell us what the takeaway is for this episode?
2: We should take away that the Bible is indeed authoritative. Now, how that works in practice is going to require a little bit of interpretation, but I think we could reduce it down to this. The Bible is not a buffet where you just pick and choose the bits you like and the bits you don't like. Because, as one of the famous church fathers, Augustine, said, you know, if you do that, it actually turns out it's what you believe is not the Bible. It's really just yourself. It's really your own prejudices and your own presuppositions. You're just recycling through the Bible. So to believe the Bible is an authority means you've got to take it at its word, take it at face value, and think, how do I submit myself? How do I subject myself to the good and holy word of God?
1: Well, if you want to dwell on that more, you can get your own copy of Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew just by following the link in the show notes. Now, next episode, we invite New Testament scholar Dr. Lynn Kidson onto the show to discuss the next chapter, the Bible is for our time, but not about our time. Plenty in there to interest everyone. Hope you can join us then.
2: I look forward to seeing everyone as well. It will be great.
1: See you guys.
0: You've been listening to the Eternity Podcast Network. Eternitypodcasts.com.au.